Well, good morning. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer. And I don't know about you, but I love Fridays. It's a great time where we gather together. We drive in maybe from Karama, maybe from Jumeirah, Barsha, Silicon Oasis, Murdoff. Some of us drive all the way from Sharjah and Ajman. Others of us may just walk here in Dira. You live nearby. This is your neighborhood. We come from all different backgrounds. We have different passports, different cultural backgrounds, but we come together on Fridays because we have one thing in common, and that's Jesus. We have all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different histories. We have different occupations, different family histories, and yet one thing binds us together, and that's Jesus. And so I know I'm excited to come here on Fridays to be reminded of that that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are closer than even biological family. And so it's a joy to be with you today. It's a joy to have fellowship with you. Now, for our ladies here this morning, your fellowship won't end today if you come to our ladies' event tonight. So 4.30 p.m. over in the Dubai Evangelical Church Center in Jebel Ali, my wife Gloria will be teaching from the book of Ephesians. And then we'll be breaking up in small groups, and the ladies will be able to study the text of Ephesians together, be able to get in God's Word, be able to join in fellowship together. So if you haven't registered yet, you can sign up on your way out. There's still space as of now. So tonight, 4.30, for the ladies in this room, uh, join us, join the ladies. Great time of fellowship, great time of food, great time of encouragement. Also, if you're a member of this church, we have our next member meeting a week from today, next Friday, 5 p.m., also at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center in Jebel Alley. So make it a priority to join us for our family time together. We'll also have a baptism service right before that um, in Garhud, and that's open to everyone here. Well, if you just joined us, you can see on the screens, we're in the book of Hosea. We've been walking through this book the last several weeks, and we find ourselves today in chapters 6 and 7. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, in a few moments, the words will be on the screens. You can also find them in your bulletin today. And I want to start off by asking a question. I want to start off by asking you a question. What does it mean to be repentant for your sin? How do you know if you're truly sorry for the sin you've committed? Is saying, I'm sorry, enough? For some of us, using those words either towards God or towards our spouse is almost impossible. There's all this pressure within us to to not admit that we've done something wrong. There's this pride in us thinking, no, I, I can't be at fault. And uttering those two words, I'm sorry, is almost impossible. We just can't get it out of our mouths. For others of us, it's a relatively easy thing to say. Maybe it's a common phrase in our vocabularies. We use it like a band aid I'll use it all the time, slap it on everything, anytime we want to fix a problem. We use it so much that people stop believing us. But is saying I'm sorry equivalent to repentance? Is promising to do better next time repentance? Is feeling sad repentance? Well, in our passage today, we'll look at Israel and we'll see five marks of shallow or false repentance. I know last week I had nine points in my pre-introduction. Other weeks we've had one main point. 
We're changing it up a little bit today. Five points, five marks of false repentance. So if you're taking notes, we'll take those one after another. And conversely, along the way, we'll see what true repentance looks like. So number one, first mark. False repentance is marked by a desire to get something from God. Central to its motive is to get something from God. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. On the face of it, how do these verses look? What do you think? Is this repentance? Well, not too bad, is it? If we took those verses completely out of its context in Hosea, well, we'd think that there's some good stuff in there. Actually, there is some good stuff in there, as we'll see. But if we didn't consider the verses before and we didn't consider the verses after, we may be persuaded. But remember, Israel had rebelled against God. They had suffered for it. We've seen in the previous verses, even last week, that they faced the discipline of God, that God would come to them like a moth, quite annoyingly, that would slowly cause destruction. That God would also come to them like a lion in judgment and discipline of their sin. And we see that a lion devours, totally destructive. And the Israelites, they want to be healed. Of course they did. Anyone hurting wants the pain to stop. But their repentance doesn't appear genuine. And how do we know this? Look over the first three verses a little more carefully now. Just take a moment. Just read it to yourself. What do you notice? Well, there's some of the right vocabulary there, isn't there? Return, acknowledge. There's recognition that God was in their suffering, that he was in control. There's even a real sense of God's sovereignty, all in those first three verses. But is there anything missing in their confession? The most obvious thing that's missing is there's no mention of sin, There's acknowledgement of the consequences of sin, but no acknowledgement of the sin that brought on the consequences. They face their woundedness, but not their waywardness. They go to God because they're torn, they want to be healed, they're stuck, they want to be bound up, they want to be revived and raised up. They're going to God for relief from their pain, not from their sin. Well, before we judge Israel, we need to recognize that you and I do this too, I'll go to church, I'll give to God, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll serve in this way, I'll take on this ministry, and God, when I do those things, you'll fix my life. Or when I do this and I do that, God, you'll give me what I want. You see this in relationships as well. It often happens in marriage counseling. You have the guilty party who sinned against the other party, and the guilty one 
won't acknowledge their sin. They won't own their sin. They won't name their sin. Instead, they profess a desire to get their marriage back together again so they can be happy. The guilty party wants to get back to where things used to be. If we could just go back to the past when things were okay. But no ownership of sin. But see, repentance isn't like a car wash that you just go through the motions and come out clean. You need heart change. You need to be like the man in Luke 18 who cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. True repentance acknowledges sin before a holy God. If you're going to turn away from your sin, you've got to acknowledge it. You have to name it and claim it. And we've seen this done poorly in our relationships on a personal level. I mean, just here's an example. What do you think of these apologies? Friend, if I've hurt you in any way, please accept my apologies. Or, if anyone was hurt by anything I said or anything I did, I'm sorry. Or how about this one? I'm sorry for any pain I may have caused. Those sound familiar? Maybe you've, maybe you've heard those. Maybe you've even apologized in a similar way. But those are really non-apologies, aren't they? I mean, it's like Israel here. Israel says nothing about their sin in these verses. Repentance must start with an ownership of our sin. It's like David in Psalm 51 after he committed sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, against you, you alone have I sinned. The Israelites not only failed to confess and acknowledge their sins before God, they're still living in sin. I mean, any break from their sin doesn't last. That's the second mark of false repentance. It doesn't last. Maybe there are some good things that come out of it initially, but true repentance will last. False repentance, it'll, it'll be fleeting. If there's any change, it's brief. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. If Israel's repentance was genuine, we'd expect a salvation promise here. But instead, we get further judgment. Your love is like a morning cloud, it's like the dew that goes away early. I mean, ouch, that's condemnation from God towards their false repentance. They're hewn by the prophets. That means that the destruction didn't come apart from the direct communication from the prophets. As the light is sure and clear, judgment would eventually come to both Israel and Judah, just as the prophets said it would. No, their love didn't stand the test of time. A love that doesn't last is not a love at all. It either flames out when you get what you want, or it dies down when you fail to get what you want, when you realize that you won't get what you want. Like the morning dew, once it faces the heat of life, it evaporates and you just continue in sin. It, it will continue unless something changes because sin is in our very nature. Look at verse 7. Hosea is pointing back to the fall of the human race. In Adam, we have all transgressed the covenant. As Adam violated covenant structures imposed on him, so the people of Hosea's day had violated the covenant made with them at Sinai. And the point is, our rebellion is something that lies deep 
and our human nature, something we inherited from Adam called original sin. None of us are born sinless and perfect. We all get a picture of this when we see young children. We see babies and infants and toddlers. No one has to teach them to sin, do we? No, they're just, they're just born that way. They're born sinners. That doesn't excuse our sin, but it does mean that every one of us must repent of our sin because we all follow in those same footsteps of Adam and Eve. So repentance is not only a turning from what you've done. It's a turning from who you are. And these natural-born sinners didn't turn. They kept embracing sin. God says in verse 8 and following, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Well, Gilead is only mentioned briefly here and in Judges chapters 10 and 12. It's possible Gilead represents the territory of Israel beyond the Jordan. In the same way Ephraim is used as a symbol of the entire nation of Israel, Gilead could be used in the same way as a reference to all of Israel. Well, the point is clear. Israel hasn't stopped sinning. Well, the priests, they're guilty of murder on the way to Shechem. Now, Shechem itself lay at a juncture in the road that led to Samaria, where you find the cult site of Bethel. Remember that the northern kingdom, that the kings there didn't want their people to go to the south to worship at the temple like they were supposed to. And so the kings, in order to try to keep control over their empire, they set up these, these worship sites in places like Gilgal and in Bethel. But those sites quickly turned into idol worship. And so that's what the Bethel is. That's what the road to Shechem led to. And it seems that these priests at the time were more concerned with the advancement of their political interests than their religious responsibilities. Not only were they not calling the people to repentance, it says that they stooped to murder to build their influence. I mean, they think that they'll even get away with a heinous crime as this. Look down at chapter 7, verse 2. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil, Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. And one of the blinding aspects of sin is that we think it can be hidden. And so our false repentance doesn't last. Soon we start back with our sin and we forget that God sees it all. And all too often we act out of fear of man and we act in ways that won't lose us face before other people. But what about the face of God? And friends, God sees it all. Our cheating the company by leaving early from work. Maybe our gossiping of our fellow students in our school. God sees our and hears our words to the car next to us and the lane beside us on the road. God sees our hearts when we're grumbling against fellow believers. God sees our greediness on payday. God sees and hears our, what we think are little white lies. No, God sees it all. When we think no one sees those things, God's gaze is upon us. He sees and he will judge. Verse 11, there will be a harvest. Well, that term can be used for either reward or judgment. And the context here points to judgment that one day they will reap the results of their betrayal. False repentance doesn't last. But true repentance is marked by a consistent changed life. 
1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. See, love and repentance, it's not just a feeling. It's not something that we feel. It's not a warm, fuzzy love and repentance. It's actually a changed life. It's obedience. To love God and to be repentant before God means your life changes. That's what repent means. At its very core, to repent means to turn. It's a turning. And so one way to see if repentance is real is if there's real life change. It's not that we're perfect. I mean, this side of heaven, none of us become sinless, but we should be sinning less. We should be growing in our battle with sin. There should be a consistent confession of it, a desire to live a holy life under the gaze of God. Well, how do you know you're repentant? Well, one way is that your confession has moved beyond your lips and has affected your heart and affected your life, that it's become indicative of how you live. And so do your actions match up with your speech? Do your actions match up with what the Word of God says? Here's another test. Would your coworkers be surprised to know that you're a Christian? Would they be surprised because they would look at your life and say, well, wait a minute, your life is nothing different than my life. It looks the same. Can they tell that you are a new creation? Now, repentance always leads to life change. Well, how about a third mark? A third mark of false repentance is just going through the motions of religion. Just going through over and over again the motions of religion. Look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This would have been a bit strange for Israel to hear. In these days, the sacrifice were the essential religious action. Sacrifices weren't bad. They were actually commanded. If you were with us when we studied Leviticus a while back, you'll remember this. In the sacrifices, God was actually commanding them to do something amazing. God was commanding them to draw near to him. I mean, this was astounding. It was actually remarkable for a number of reasons. Because think of this. God is the holy creator, perfect God of the entire universe. And that same God was calling us, his finite creatures, to come into his presence. And because of our sin, we had separated ourselves from that holy and perfect God, and yet God provided a way for us to come into his presence. And the way he provided there in the old covenant was through these sacrifices. And all were welcome to approach God. All were welcome to come to him. And so you'd bring a bull, and you'd sacrifice it to God. If you couldn't afford a bull, then you would bring a lamb, and you'd sacrifice that to God. If you couldn't afford a lamb, then if you were the poorest of the poor, you could still bring a pigeon, you could still bring a bird. No one was excluded from coming to God. There's no hierarchy or classism in God's family. I mean, the sacrifices were a good thing. They showed that you could have a relationship with God, and they pointed to forgiveness of sins coming later from a greater sacrifice, Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that you see here in this passage and throughout the scriptures is that far more important than the sacrifice itself was their hearts as they sacrificed. Now, God's concerned not only about what we do, but why we do it. And God says this forcefully in Amos chapter 5. I hate, 
I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. In Isaiah chapter 1, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And God is saying, stop bringing your meaningless offerings. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, some were doing these rituals to get something from God. They were going to sacrifice and they're trying to buy God's affection or buy rain for their crops from God. They were doing something to try to get something from God. But others were doing it out of routine. It was just what they did. It's who they are. They were a people who sacrificed. Their grandfathers sacrificed. Their fathers sacrificed. And so they do the sacrifices. Everybody's doing it. It's a bit like those of us who come from a Christian background. You know, you're not a Muslim. You're not a Hindu. You're not a Catholic. You're not a Buddhist. You're a Christian. Your parents were Christians. Maybe you come from a so-called Christianized country. But God is saying that's not it. Your national ID card won't gain you entrance into heaven. Somehow your parents' faith isn't genetically transferred to you when you're born. God's saying that he doesn't want our token prayers. He doesn't want our token church attendance. He wants our hearts. If false repentance is just going through the motions and the rituals of religion, true repentance is marked by a delight in God. Now remember, this is the book of Hosea. So remember, we have that illustration, that metaphor in front of us as we walk through the book, that metaphor of a husband and a wife, the metaphor of a husband, the true story of a husband loving his adulterous wife, and that, how that mirrors God's love for an adulterous people. God is like that husband who wants the heart and soul of his bride. He wants our delight. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. This is a steadfast love. No, you serve God because you love to please God and to delight in him. Well, a fourth mark, fourth mark of false repentance is that your life is mixed with the world. There's a mix. You have God, but you you have the world. It's a, a little bit of both. And what Hosea is doing is he uses several different images in chapter seven to show us this syncretism of the Israelites. So chapter 7, verse 4, Israel was like an oven in their adulterous passions. In this analogy, the oven has been heated, but something went wrong. When a baker bakes bread, they first knead the dough, they get the dough ready, and then you get the fire going, and you cover it up. You, the fire lays underneath until you're ready to stir it up and to put the bread inside. But this baker never stirred the fire. Maybe the dough was rising overnight, the baker fell asleep and didn't tend to the fire. And by morning, instead of a hot bed of coals, you have a fire that's ablaze. You can't put the bread in there. Now, the pastors, the people were destroying them like a fire that had gotten out of control. Well, verse 8, Israel was like a half-baked cake. Not only were they out of control, here Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. They mixed with the people. They built political alliances they thought would bring them stability. But it leaves them like a cake unturned. You put the cake in the fire to cook it, 
but you'd have to turn it around so you, the whole thing would get cooked. It'll be ruined if you don't. It'll be overcooked on one side. It'll be burnt on the other. It's like a really gross pancake. One side burnt like charcoal and ashes. The other side just doughy and uncooked. It's as if the side turned toward the nations is symbolized by being burnt. And the underdone side symbolized the Israelites' weak commitment to Yahweh. There was so much in the word, just a little bit of Yahweh here and there. But they had mixed with the peoples and had trusted in the nations for their security and their significance. Now, Israel thinks if they go to the Canaanites, if they stick with the world, they'll have a stronger army. They'll be more secure. They'll be more materially wealthy. But at the same time, they want to be able to turn to Yahweh. They want to be able to get what they can from God. And so they mix the two. I mean, why not get the best of both worlds? It can only make us stronger, right? But what happens with a half-baked cake? Well, it's useless. You throw it away. It makes you sick. A true repentance pursues God alone for its sufficiency. No, you don't mix with the world. Mixing with the world makes you weak. And this tragic thing is that Israel was doing just that. Rather than going to God alone, they went to the nations, and they just didn't see it. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. It's like Israel was an old age, and it didn't know it. No, here's what it's like. It's like you're a 40-year-old, and you're trying to play football like you did back when you were a teenager. Right? 40 is an interesting age. You don't have the wisdom yet of someone who is 60 or 70, but you don't have the strength of a 20-year-old anymore, but you think you do. Things just don't match up, and so maybe you get new clothes, you start working out, you do whatever you can to try to match your strength with what you feel in your heart. At the same time, gray hairs start being sprinkled on your head, on your beard, but you can hardly see them. And so you go play football with the teenagers. You go play, you play as hard as you can, but what happens afterwards? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Your body hurts. Everything hurts. And so you ice your knees. You ice your body down, and it hurts for days. You can't do, do it and play like you used to when you were a teenager. You don't see it. Deep inside, you still feel like you did when you were 20 years old. Well, Israel doesn't realize that they lost their strength. They don't see it. They thought mixing with the pagans... Mixing with the world, a little bit of Yahweh, a lot of world. They thought that mixing with the world would make them stronger. And God's saying, no, it's actually making you weaker. You're not adding, you're actually subtracting. Well, is it possible for someone to ruin their lives, but they lie to themselves and don't see it? Of course. Well, verse 10, even with all this, they didn't turn to the Lord and seek him. And at the root of that sin is pride. You're thinking, I know the way my life should go better than God does. You fly according to your own plans. And Hosea says that you're like a dove in verse 11. We think of doves as beautiful birds, but oftentimes doves are quite clueless. If you've ever watched them, they'll just fly from one side to one side to another side and back. And we've seen this in our neighborhood where the doves are just flying cluelessly. And oftentimes they'll even land in the middle of the street with oncoming traffic coming after them. This was Israel. They were going from one nation to another nation to another nation. They were calling Israel to the south. They were calling Assyria to the east. And they were going to one nation after another. 
And the message here is the same. Israel is mistakenly banking on foreign alliances for their security and their stability. They don't see, verse 15, that God had done everything for them. He trained and strengthened them. Everything they had was from him, but verse 16, instead of turning upward, they remain in their sin. God calls them a treacherous bow, a broken weapon, useless and dangerous. Verse 12, God will pull the bird of Israel down and trap her in his net. Verse 13, destruction is coming for their rebellion. They don't want destruction, and so there are tears. And that's the fifth and final mark of false repentance. Number five, false repentance is marked by empty tears. Empty tears. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Crying out to God for our sin is completely appropriate. But are they crying out to God because of their sin? Well, no, they're crying out because of the effects of their sin. For the grain, for the wine, they're crying out because they've lost something. They're crying out because they want something. This is worldly sorrow. It's a sadness for their consequences. God's not happy that you're sad because you were caught. A bucket of tears is not necessarily a sign of repentance. Everyone is sad when they face the effects of sin. None of us like it. Well, after all this talk of false repentance and a few little glimpses into true repentance, let me give us now a full definition of what true repentance looks like. True repentance is a turning away from our sin with a broken heart and turning to a personal relationship with God. True repentance is turning away from sin with a broken heart. But it's also a turning to a personal relationship with God. Our repentance must be with a broken heart, not because of what we've lost, but because of who we've hurt. We've sinned sinned against God. King David said, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Surely repentance is turning away from the things that we see in these pages in Hosea, not in order to get something from God, but to get God. Now, true repentance is marked not by tears from the pain of losing out on something in this world. It's the pain of losing out on God. God's desire is that we would desire God. God desires that we desire him. That's not arrogant. That's not boastful or selfish of God because it's the greatest thing that he can give to us. It's himself. It's the greatest gift he, he can give to each and every one of us. I remember just from a few minutes ago singing from My Soul Finds Rest in God Alone. We sang, oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. See, he's our delight. He's our reward. It's not what we can get from God. Our reward is God himself. It's a personal relationship with him. Now, if God is God, why wouldn't our greatest joy be found in him? Repentance is certainly a turning away from sin. That's a given. But if we only turn away from our sin... 
eventually we're going to fall. There needs to be a turning to something greater. This is similar to why most of us came to Dubai. We were in our home countries, and we left here to come. We left home to come to Dubai because we thought there was something better for us here in Dubai. It might be different for each of us, but we wouldn't have come to the UAE if we didn't think there was something better here than what we've left behind. Well, this is a bit like what repentance is. You leave something behind, but it's not just an empty turning. It's a turning to something better. Because unless you think there's something better, you won't ultimately stop your sin. It's insufficient. It won't help you stop taking those pain pills. It won't help you stop gambling your money away. It won't help you stop flirting and filling your heart with emotional affairs. Just because those things aren't good, you won't be able to stay away from them forever. No, you have to look to something better. You have to turn from a false lover to a better lover. You have to do what the great Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers says, is you have to find a more expulsive power of a greater affection. You have to find something more beautiful than what your sin is. You won't hate your sin and repent of it until you love God more. Now, last week, we had a men's seminar. So the ladies are gathering tonight. Last Friday, our men gathered for a seminar on the topic of purity. So Josh Smith led us in some sessions on fighting to live pure lives as men, fighting things like lust and struggles with pornography. And he used a great illustration about Odysseus and Orpheus from Greek mythology. Now, in the Homer, Homer's The Odyssey, maybe you read this growing up, I moved around a lot as a kid in high school, and so I actually read it several times and was always impacted by this story of Odysseus. He was the great legendary king of Ithaca, and he was leading his men there uh, on the sea, and they were coming at one point upon the island where the sirens lived. Now, the sirens were these great beautiful creatures who lured nearby sailors with their enchanting voices. So they would just sing out these most beautiful notes, and the men couldn't contain themselves. They would literally jump off the side of the ship and try to swim to the shore. But because of the conditions of the sea and because of the rocky coast, none of them ever made it. They died there on the rocks. But, just, but, but even so, men would just jump one after another, just leaping to their death at the sound of these sirens. Well, Odysseus was curious, and he wanted to hear what the sirens sounded like. And so he told his men, as they approached the island of the sirens, he had each of his men put in some beeswax in their ears so that they couldn't hear. But he asked his men to tie him to the mast of the ship so that he could hear the sirens but not swim to them to his death. And so they did that. And he told them as they were tying him up that no matter how much he begged them, no matter how much he he urged them to release him at the sound of the sirens not to do so, but to tie him down even tighter. And so just like he said, they go by The men have the beeswax in their ears. They can't hear. But Odysseus is so enchanted by this beautiful, alluring sound that he's yelling at his men to release him. But of course, they listen to his earlier command and they hold him down tighter and tighter. Well, perhaps that's the same way some of us try to deal with our sin. We just put different things in place to hold us down tighter and tighter. You still want a taste of it. You're still flirting with it. You're still hearing those siren sounds. You're just trying to tie yourself down tighter and tighter. Or you put up a fight. Maybe you put various accountability structures in your life 
You put them in place, and maybe they help for a time. But being tied to the mast only works so long before you give in, before you taste the sin, before you find a way to get out. It's not permanent. Well, Josh told us in the seminar, a better way forward is is a story of Orpheus. Now, Orpheus, instead of being tied to the mast and instead of putting beeswax in his ears, Orpheus took out his lyre and he played the most beautiful music with his lyre. He played it loudly and he played it extravagantly. He played it so incredibly beautiful that it drowned the sound of the sirens. And they went on by without any temptation. It was a better music to their ears, and they escaped their sin and temptation. See, repentance is a turning from something, yes. It's a turning away from our sin. But for our repentance to be lasting and for our repentance to be true, it has to turn to something better. You need a louder and a better song. You'll only be repentant for your sin when you see that there's something out there better than your sin. One author has said that repentance is less about feeling bad over behavior and more about feeling awe and delight towards God. The more glimpses we have of the glory of God, the more we mourn for scorning that glory. See, if you just feel bad about your sin, you just feel guilty about your sin, that'll only last so long, right? And then you get back into the sin again the next day and the next day and the next day. True repentance will always be marked by a personal relationship with God. Now, friends, We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He's the one who was scorned for us on the cross. And then like Hosea 6.2 may allude to, on the third day, he'll rise from the dead. We were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. But God, this is the good news we held out every week, God intervenes. That God broke through this world. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth to die for our sins. That's how much God loves us. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus took the full wrath of God for you. Jesus faced your punishment for you. Jesus tasted death and judgment for you. Friends, this is good news. This is great news. Turn upward to him. The text says the Israelites turned downward. They turned away, not upward. Friends, the right response to a text like this is to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've tried to fight your sin on your own, you felt guilty for things and maybe you didn't even know why, but you just kept taking steps, taking steps towards your sin, you need to know that Jesus is the better song that will melt your heart and will suppress your appetite for sin. Maybe you keep falling deeper and deeper in your depravity. You've tried everything. You've tried to distract yourself. Maybe you've even tried just coming here on a Friday morning, and maybe that helps you feel good for a time. But it's just that it's only going to be a time unless you turn, unless you repent, unless there's heart change, unless God breaks into your life. Well, friends, look to Jesus. He's the answer you've been looking for. 1 John 1 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, true repentance is a turning away from our sin with a broken heart and turning to a personal relationship with God. Do that today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we're reminded again this Friday that we were not left 
dead in our sins. Father, thank you for saving us. Help us now live a life of continued repentance. Would we cling to Christ? Would we be a people who would turn from our sin with a broken heart? Would we turn to you in a personal relationship? Father, the temptations of this world are many. Would we turn to a better song? Would we turn to something better? Would we turn to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.